As some of the more observant among you might have already guessed, today's topic is called Life's Dark Valleys. Actually, we usually put on another slideshow, but the projector wasn't working well, so we thought we'd just play it safe and put this one throughout the kirtan. Um, this will be a two- or three-part series, I imagine. But life is full of valleys, the American way. You know, you watch TV, you watch the movies, billboards, newspaper ads, and it's in order to make you think that life is all about being on sun-drenched mountaintops. You never saw anyone promoting a product on TV. They were in a gloomy, dark valley. They're always like up on top of a mountain, whether it's the car or the beer or the girl or whatever it is. They're always drinking in the sun up on top of a mountain, you know. Sly Stallone, you know, he's up on top of the stairs and the theme song, Eye of the Tiger, is playing. So, so, so we all imagine ourselves like that. We all imagine ourselves like. And yet life's greatest gains don't come on mountaintops. They come in valleys. And in fact, when you think about life as just living on sun-drenched mountain plops where everything's Hollywood perfect, you're missing one important point. Is that you didn't get to a mountain pop top unless you went through a valley. You don't get to enjoy those highs unless you earn them by going through the lows. And then let me ask you another question. How many of you are on a mountaintop? How many of you were down at the trailhead uh, and you saw a mountain, Cascade Peak or one of the Maple Mountain or Spanish Fork Mountain? You thought, Gee, that'd be great to climb it. And then you, from the, from the valley, you climbed the mountaintop at great effort and exertion. And you got to the mountaintop and you enjoyed it. You enjoyed the atmosphere, the clear skies, the vision below. But after just a few seconds, you notice further along in the mountain range, there's another mountaintop that's even better. And you're, you're, you can't help but think, well, gee, I wonder what it would be like. It's nice here, but that's a higher mountain, and that is more. I wonder what it would be like to see the world from that mountaintop. And so, what do you know? They're going down another valley and trying to scale another mountaintop. So, this is about life's. Valleys, and it's based on the teachings of His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta, Swami, Srila Prabhupada. As I said, you know, it's not all sunshine. If you have all sunshine and no rain, it's a very uninteresting terrain, a very uninteresting topography. You need the sun-drenched, barren mountaintops, and you also need the canyons. And we know a lot about canyons here in Utah. We're intimately familiar with crevices and canyons, and gorges. Um, canyons are basically a place where the mountaintops drop off and you get a crevice and some canyons don't get very much sunlight at all. Far from the mountaintops which are drenched with sun for hours and hours a day, there are canyons in Utah that might only get sun for one hour during the noontime throughout the whole day. Life is not all about mountaintops, it also is about canyons. It's not all about sanding the light but it's also about dark, gloomy valleys, and they're equally interesting. If you, if you map the geography of your life or the geography of anybody's life, there are lots of valleys in our life. And the topics of them, the names of them, are not particularly appealing. They're not things that we embrace or go to, but they are things that we will find in our path. They're inevitable. And they have a certain purpose in our life. If you imagine... Describing the geography of our life, you might describe, as well as the various mountaintops, the various achievements, the valley of weeping. How about the valley of deep darkness? The valley of calamity, 
the valley of ill health, the valley of divorce, the valley of debt, the valley of loss. Every one of us will experience these at least one if not more times. Here's a quote from a Back to God head. Back to God head is our inter-society magazine. It's been published for about 40 years now. It talks about depression. Depression is the number one health problem in the world. Now what about depressives? Mentally healthy people enhance their self-esteem by creating flattering illusions about themselves. People who can't do it suffer from an overdose of reality. So who's a depressive? Maybe someone who's not out of touch with reality, but maybe someone who is experiencing an overdose of reality. There is now considerable evidence that depression is marked not by unrealistic pessimism, but by depressive realism and absence of illusion. A wise man many thousands of years ago said, Vanity, vanity, meaningless, meaninglessness, meaninglessness, meaninglessness. It is all you find under the sun. All you find under the sun is meaningless. Because it's temporary, it brings with it misery. If you think about what there is under the sun, and you bounce out of bed enthusiastic to enjoy those things and those relationships and those achievements which exist under the sun, then you are in illusion. You are motivated by an illusion because all these things are temporary, whereas we are eternal. And we'll never be happy with anything that's temporary. The eternal spirit soul can never derive any permanent, lasting satisfaction from the temporal things of this world. Just like a fish. Take it out of water, give it all kinds of substitutes for water, a house, an elk ridge, a nice BMW, good fat bank balance, put it in the movies, buy it a ticket to Hollywood, let it be a famous fish, you know. Go to Chinese Grauman's Theater and let him put his fin, you know, in the concrete there, you know, the fish print. None of that's going to substitute for being in the water because that's the only place, that's the only environment in which the fish can be happy. So we're eternal spirit souls and our home is in the spiritual world. And in this material world, this foreign environment, we can never find permanent happiness. We're just chasing phantasmagoria. And so the wise man who said, vanity, vanity, everything under the sun is vanity, is meaningless, was right. And if that's your focus, if that's your focus, everything in this globe, in this orb, you look out and you see the horizon bowing like a fishbowl in all directions. This is what's under the sun. If those are the things, those objects are the things that you set your goals by and you identify your with, yourself with and that you measure your standards of achievement with, then you're in huge illusion. You're in a huge illusion. And if there's someone who's a depressive that sees the futility and temporality of all this and be consequently becomes depressed, they're actually more situated in reality than people that make up all kinds of uh, fantasy uh, daydreams about themselves as being you know, in the center of a Hollywood scenario. So the point is that you cannot focus on what's under the sun. Because there's only two outcomes. Ga-ga-la-la illusion or an overdose of reality, depression. There's more than what's under the sun. William Blake wrote what perhaps the, no, the shortest poem in the English language is I, why? But this may be the second shortest poem in the English language. Oh, sun shower, sun flower, weary of time, 
who count as the steps of the sun, seeking that sweet golden climb where the traveler's journey is done. Seeking that place beyond focusing on the sun, just like if you want to get an idea of the moon, the best way is through depth perception. If you want to see the moon, or get a good sense of the distance of the moon, look at the moon through the branches of a nearby tree. And that will give you good perception. Good perception. So similarly, the sunflower is looking at the sun, but aspiring after that which is beyond the sun, after that sweet golden climb where the traveler's journey is done. Now those who are truly exuberant, those who are truly joyful, truly satisfied, are not those who set their sights under the sun, but those who set their sights beyond the sun, back to home, back to God. And there's nothing more helpful, believe it or not, and this sounds outrageous and illogical, but it is the valleys of life, the gloomy, dark passages of life, which will qualify us for escape from this world of birth and death and entrance into the eternal spiritual world far more than the sun-drenched mountaintops. So let's review in this upcoming series five positive aspects of valleys. First is, they're inevitable. Second is, valleys are unpredictable. Third is, valleys are impartial. Fourth is, valleys are temporary. And fifth is, valleys are purposeful. Valleys are inevitable, number one. You have just come out of a valley, or you're just coming into a valley, or you're just between valleys right now. Every one of us falls into one of those three categories. If you're not in a valley right now, it's because you're coming out of one, or you're going into one. It's inevitable. Valleys are inevitable. This is the world of duality. Everything that goes up eventually comes down. There's no question of if you're going to go in a valley. The question is, it's when. And I should, uh, because uh, most people who are just getting the audio aren't seeing these little cartoons here, uh, there's a picture of a guy holding a little dog here, and the caption is, if it's small and cute, it will inevitably pee in your hand. That's inevitable. And the one before here, a couple of slides back on depression, a girl says, God, seriously, you need to get down here and fast. Things aren't looking too good. I was a depressive young girl. Why are the valleys of life inevitable? They're inevitable because of a principle called karma. Karma, as you all know, means as you sow, so you shall reap. What goes around comes around. Every, every day, every moment of every day of our life, every reaction, everything that happens to us in the present, in the now, is a reaction from either a pious or a cruel deed in the past. Everything that happens. Nothing happens by accident. You get up in the morning and your day is going to be filled with certain pleasures and certain pains. None of those are by accident. Not the pains, not the pleasures. The pleasures are a, a, re, a fruit of a pious action that one has done in the past. The pains are the fruit of an impious, cruel, and insensitive action that one has done in the past. And one could say, well, how is that? I haven't hurt anybody recently. In fact, why did I break my leg? I didn't break anybody else's leg recently, so why should my leg be broken? In fact, I helped an old lady across the street just this morning. I go and volunteer at the hospital, so why should bad things happen to me? I haven't done anything bad to any people recently. See, that's the problem. Bad is bad. 
pain is pain. We're not the only ones that feel pain. Pain is not specific to our species. Cows, dogs, lambs, sheep, chicken, poultry, fish, they all feel pain. They don't willingly give up their flesh so that we can enjoy the luxury of eating them. So if you include, if you include your liability, if you expand your sphere of liability to include the animals that we pay someone to grow and then to kill so that we can eat them, aha, then we get a different picture. Then we're not quite as clean and lily white as we imagine we are. That in fact we do have blood on our hands and lots and lots and lots and lots of it. At the turn of the century, when we grew our own animals and our own chickens and we slaughtered them for our own food, the average American ate 300 animals during the course of their lifetime. And then when it all became mechanized and you had the slaughterhouses and the packing plants and all like that, it becomes so easy and you don't have to look at the face, you don't have to look at the living entity in the eye that you're killing. You can just go and pick it up at the supermarket, nicely packaged and labeled. Like, it, like, it's, like, like it's right next to the broccoli, it's right next to the carrots. Now we eat 9,000 animals during the course of our lives. 9,000 animals. So if, if there is justice, if there is balance in the universe, if things even out, do we get to cause that much pain and suffering? Do we get to take 9,000 lives and just walk off scot-free? Is there no reaction for that? Of course, we would like to think there's no reaction, but it says here, valleys are inevitable. Valleys are inevitable. For everything, there are accounts made, and there will be a bill presented. So the pains, as well as the pleasures, are the reactions of deeds that we've committed in our past lives. And you've probably all read this before, but I'll just go over it. We may forget the misdeeds for which we may suffer at this present moment, but we must remember that Paramatma, or the super soul, the Lord within the heart, is our constant companion, and therefore he knows everything past, present, and future. And because the Paramatma feature of the Lord, Krishna, destines all actions and reactions, he is the supreme controller also. Without his sanction, not a blade of grass can move. Every one of us is an individual spirit soul housed in a temporary material body, and as such, we're aware of the pains and pleasures in each and every one of our bodies. Now, accompanying the individual soul, according to the Bhagavad Gita, is another soul, which is the supreme soul, or the Paramatma. And whereas we as individual souls are conscious only of the pains and pleasures in our bodies, the Paramatma, or the super soul, is conscious of the pains and pleasures in all bodies. And the super soul is also universally aware of our good deeds as well as our misdeeds. So we may have forgotten deeds that we've committed earlier in this life, deeds that we've committed in past lives. But the super soul knows everything about every living entity, past, present, and future. So the reaction may not come instantly. The reaction may come five years later, ten years later. It may come in another lifetime. We may have forgotten it. We may say, why did this happen to me? I don't remember. That's no excuse. The fact is, it happened, and somebody remembers, the Supreme remembers, and because he's in every living entity's heart and aware of past, present, future, he's also the Supreme Controller. So he doesn't want us to suffer. He doesn't want us to enjoy temporary pleasure either, which is just the other side of the same coin. So he asks us, to surrender to Him. He asks us not just to keep Him on the edge of our consciousness, peripherally, 
not just to consult him when we want something or to call on him when we get into trouble. He doesn't want us to be on the edge of our lives. He doesn't want to be on the edge of our lives. He wants to be in the center of our lives. He wants to be our life manager. And from his, if you look at it from his point of view, if you look at it from the point of view of the creator, the father of all living beings, you will understand what it means to live free from karma. What it lives means to live a life of transcendence. God is the father. Now a father may have ten sons. Think of it from the point of view of the father. Nine of the sons might be lawyers and very successful. He doesn't even have to think about them. He's very happy and very satisfied that they are where they are and doing what they're doing. One of the sons may have Down syndrome. Okay? So the other nine sons go to the father and say, this Down syndrome son is not contributing to society. Uh, so let's just uh, cut him up and have him for dinner. So what's the father, what's his reaction going to be? It's going to be horror. Horror. He's going to say, no, I love him as much as I love you. In fact, I think about him more than I think about you. Because he's my prodigal son. He's lost. He's, he's, he needs extra help and extra attention. And so I focus on him even more than I focus on you. So the fact that uh, animals are less intelligent, less fortunate than we are, simply means that we need to be their stewards. We need to be their big brothers and take care of them. Otherwise, there will be a reaction for that kind of insensitivity. And the reaction is enacted by the Lord. The Lord doesn't want us to experience pains and pleasures in this material world. And he asks us to... To, to try to see things from his perspective and to surrender to him, in which case we are immune, we get a pass for all actions and reactions in this material world. So there are three D's, three S's, and three F's that all condition souls, all souls who are suffering from their past deeds, uh, have to undergo in this material world under the sun. The three D's are, in your life you'll have difficulty, disappointment, and discouragement. Difficulty, disappointment, and discouragement are the three D's. The three S's that you cannot avoid are suffering, sorrow, and sickness. Suffering, sorrow, and sickness. And the three F's are frustration, failure, and fatigue. Every one of these is inevitable. There's no way you can live your life in such a way as to avoid them. Aside from valleys being inevitable, they're unpredictable. They're unpredictable. Here's a girl on her way to the wedding and the car's broken down. You've, I don't know if you've experienced this on the way to a wedding, but you've all had flat tires, right? Did anyone ever plan a flat tire? No one ever planned a flat tire. Okay. So things happen when you least expect them. You can't plan them. You can't schedule them. It'd be nice if we could plan our flat tires. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? You know, I've got to have one flat tire a year, so I'll plan it on this day when I'm not rushing to any pressing appointment. That would be really, really nice, wouldn't it? When we do pujas, we just did a puja uh, this morning in Salt Lake City for some Indian, Anand and his wife, Swati. They just bought a, a new house up in Sugar House. And so there's a ceremony called Griya Pravesha, where you, uh, you sanctify the new home. So one of the things is, a coconut is part of the ceremony, and at the end of the ceremony, you take the coconut and you break it. You break it on the pavement. So the idea is that if you have an accident, if you have an auto accident in your karma, in your future, uh, if you sponsor a ceremony 
where you invite a priest and you have the chanting of Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Uh, and you break the coconut, you, you get a, you get, well, this is the belief. This is a, that you get a pass. That if there's a breakage, if something's de- destined to break in your life in the near future, and you break the coconut, people believe that will take the place of an auto accident. That will take the place of an auto accident. So I'm not going to comment on that, but that's the belief, see. So it would be nice if life was like that, right? If we could plan when we're going to get sick, if we could plan our auto accidents, you know, if we could plan all kinds of different things. Have you ever had a day start out normal and turn on a dime? Or maybe even had a day start out, you know, one of those zippity-doo-dum, zippity-days, you know? And then all of a sudden, the zip went out of your day. Has that ever happened to you? You know, the people in 1946 in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they started that day just like any other day. You know, some of them got out of bed and they had some bad karma and they were feeling a little mopey and grumpy because of it. Some of them got out of bed and they were getting the result of some good karma and they were feeling like pretty zippy, you know, pretty zippy. But the day turned on a dime for about 100,000 people in that city and all the others that were permanently maimed for their life. But the day started, you know, and not one of them, not one of them had an inkling, not one of them had an inkling that this would be the biggest holocaust in the history of human society today. Similarly, you're going to get up one day and that's going to be the last day on earth. That's going to be the day of your death and you're not going to have a clue. You're not going to have a clue that that is the day of your death. It's like uh, if you're a BYU student, you know exams, you know when exams are coming, so you can kind of goof off a little bit, and then you can study a little bit, and you can goof off, and so on and so forth. But this is like the exam, you don't know when it's coming. You don't know when it's coming, so we need to be prepared. Football player, bad knee. I remember Gail Sayers when I was young. Gail Sayers was a famous running back, and uh, I don't know what year that was. Um, but uh, just snap, you know, snap. Bo Jackson, all those great. One minute you're a hero, and the next minute you're a zero. Just uh, six weeks ago, I was in my office doing something. I was feeling pretty good, you know, getting some stuff ready for the Festivals of Colors in March. Artists were coming, saying, yeah, yeah, I'm coming from out of state. I'm thinking of all the beautiful chanting, everything going. And Radhakrishna walks in the office and says, bye, Bobby Fell. Vaibhavi fell. And this is Vaibhavi over here. She's getting better now. It's been six weeks. She was in the hospital. She had hip replacement surgery the same. She didn't get up that morning thinking, well, it's a great day for a new hip. That <laughs> <laughs> was the furthest thing from her mind. You know? She didn't know that when she went to bed that night, she'd have like some foreign, you know, I don't know what is titanium thing with bands and, you know, glue in there. But, you know, and even though the outside is damaged, and it takes a long time for rehabilitation, she may not be back physically to exactly that point. And the inside, and correct me if I'm wrong, wonderful things have happened. Purification has taken effect. Maturity has been achieved. So many lectures, so many rounds she's able to chant. So much closer she's been able to get to Prabhupada during this time. You walk in her room, she's got a Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam, Krishna. She didn't even have time for that before she got injured. So all in all, I would say great good has been done. Although hardly any of us would pray for that. 
Hardly any of us would go out of our way to incur that. And yet, mark my words, it will happen to all of us. The question is, how will we deal with it? How will we react to it? A great sage, disciple of Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Naratam Dastakur, he said it very simply, I worked hard, I worked diligently, I worked energetically, I built a house, and one day it burned down. I actually didn't know, I actually did not know, when I prepared this, this lecture was prepared about two weeks ago. So how could I know what? What am I referring to? How could I know about the burning of the Provo Tabernacle? Right? And in fact, I was on my way to the field house, 6 o'clock. Well, what, what morning was it? Wednesday. Wednesday morning. I was on my way to the field house, Wednesday morning. I was traveling up University Avenue, just gotten over the overpass. It's about a quarter to 6 in the morning. And I saw all these flashing lights up there at University and Center. I thought, what's going on? You know, it couldn't be a bank robbery or something at 6 in the morning. Maybe a, maybe a you know, high-speed chase with 47 police cars. And then I got, you know, about 300 south and I saw all the smoke. And at first we have some Indians that own motels there along the west side of University. I said, oh my gosh, I hope it's not Executive Inn. I hope it's not Colony Inn. Well, I'd already passed Colony Inn. And then I got, and then I saw, oh my gosh, the unthinkable. Just unthinkable. The wonderful 1883 it was built. What a landmark. What a beautiful building. And I also, uh, every day we have the National Day of Prayer in May, and I've been asked to speak in the National Day of Prayer inside the tabernacle along with the other members of the religious faith. And it's, it was a beautiful place, beautiful building. And then just up in flames. So Naratam Dastakur says, I built my house and it all burned down. Whatever you achieve, it will all be destroyed. You're brought into this world to lose. That's all you'll do. Right now, you're not so focused on losing because you're young. It's a young crowd. And this stage of your life is all about gaining. Gaining a wife, gaining kids, gaining a house, gaining a car. Whatever you gain, you're going to have to lose. You'll not gain anything that you won't lose it. Even this body that you gain, there'll come a day which will be your last day in this body. And you'll be forced out of this body. All these things are inevitable and they're also unpredictable. You cannot say you're young. You cannot say with certainty that you have 50 years left in your life. You cannot say that. You don't know if you have 50 years or 40 years or 30 years or 20 years or 10 years. You don't even know if you have 10 months or 10 days or 10 hours or 10 seconds. You cannot say that for certain. So the valleys of life are unpredictable. And why are they unpredictable? Why can we not see the future? Why can we not plan things? Because it means we should be in a state of readiness at all times. We should be fit, spiritually fit, spiritually healthy at all times. And unfortunately America is like a, you know, lie on the couch, push the remote TV, stuff yourself with potato chips in one hand, have your big gulp in the other hand, you know, and then when things get out of control, your blood pressure and your obesity, take some pills, you know, or have a surgeon come in and do liposuction or surgical weight reduction, you know, that's the American way of life, you know, yeah, <laughs> the, the Hollywood chimera. But the fact that valleys are unpredictable means that the wise discerning person should always keep themselves fit because any day could be the day. 
When Lord Ramachandra was on the planet, as told in the great epic Ramayana, this is Ram on the right with the bow, and to his left is Sita, and then his right is Lakshman, and then at the bottom, I don't know how well you can see, but Hanuman, the great, great monkey devotee of the incarnation of God, Lord Ram, is sitting there on the altar at the feet of Lord Ram. When Ram was in the forest, his wife was kidnapped by the evil demon Ravana. We do this pageant every year in September at our festival of India, if any were you there. So Ravana had an island fortress out in what is present-day Sri Lanka. So he whisked Sita to his island fortress and kept her captive there. Nobody knew her whereabouts. And Ram, with the monkey armies, they went north, south, east and west. They scoured the mainland of India all the way up into Afghanistan and Iran and throughout India and they could not find Sita. They finally, there was only one place they hadn't looked. They were sitting at the edge of the ocean, the Bay of Bengal on the southernmost tip of India in a place that's now commemorated with a huge temple called Rameshwaram. And they were looking, you know, they'd heard stories, they'd heard legends of this demon king who had a city of gold on an island 800 miles away. And they thought that just might be where Sita was carried. But 800 miles? How are we going to get there? How are we going to reconnoiter? How are we going to check it out? And one of the monkeys said, I can jump 100 miles, but I can't jump 800 miles. And another monkey said, I can jump 300 miles, but I can't jump 800 miles. Too much uh, sweets and too much deep fried foods. And another monkey, he said, I can jump 500 miles, but I can't jump 800 miles. And then Hanuman stepped up. And Hanuman had lived his life in preparation for this one day. From childhood, he had thought that someday Ram will come and he'll call on me to do something that only I can do and no one else can do. And I need to be fit and I need to be conscious each and every day of my life that I will be called on to perform a superhuman task that's never been performed in the history of the world. And he kept himself fit. And Prabhupada actually wrote a little poem about the inability of the other monkeys to span the distance. He said, Big, big monkey, big, big belly, Ceylon jumping melancholy. <laughs> but Hanuman didn't have a big belly. In India, the luxury, they don't eat, they didn't used to, I'm sorry to say, they do eat meat now, about 50%. But 50, 60 years ago, nobody ate meat in India. So the food of luxury was not a meat choice, but it was ghee. If you were wealthy and you could afford it, instead of having your food prepared with uh, uh, vegetable oil or soy oil or peanut oil, you would have everything prepared in ghee, clarified butter, which is considered first class, first class food, I see. So all the wealthy to-do men in their late 40s and 50s, they all have these, I'll turn my, I don't have one particularly, I hope. <laughs> and it's, it's not like one of these big guts, you know, it's not like the one to see here. It's, not, it's just in the lower part of the abdomen, it's just the lower half, and it just sticks out like this, and they're actually cute. <laughs> no, you know, different cultures have different standards of beauty, so in India, it's considered to be very beautiful. You know, in, if, if you're approaching middle age, 
you have a lot of dignity afforded you if you just if you have a little bee belly. And you can pop and it's really hard, you know? It's not soft. So due to comfortable living, you know, many of the monkeys they had their ghee belly, you know. But Hanuman never had his ghee belly. And he crouched down, he crouched down, and he was the son of the wind god, Vayu, which helped. And he tensed his calves and his haunches. And he took a deep breath, he hyperventilated, and he launched himself. He launched himself from the mainland of India, and he spanned with one single jump, the 800 miles. He found Sita, he jumped back, reported to Ram, and then they built a bridge, and then the rest is just history. So that's one of the reasons why valleys are unpredictable, so that you may always keep yourself in a state of readiness. God has a plan for your life. God doesn't want you just to get up in the morning, breathe oxygen, eat and die. He has a plan for your life. It's a glorious plan. But you have to be ready. You have to be ready. It's just like if a man is fertile and a woman is potent, you'll get a child. So God has a plan for you, but you also have to keep his potency. You have to Prepare for yourself. Another little cartoon, just throw in there for comic relief. Is it me or is the weather becoming more unpredictable? A guy's shoving snow and his neighbor is out pushing a, ba- a lawnmower wearing shorts and a Hawaiian shirt and sandals. Unpredictable. Valleys are impartial. And we'll probably wind up with this one and leave the rest for future segments. They're inevitable, they're unpredictable, and they're impartial. And each one of these characteristics is for good. It's for good. It's for qualifying us, for purifying us to go to that eternal spiritual world where there's no birth, no death, no disease, and no old age. Valleys are impartial. Rain falls everywhere. The ocean doesn't need rain. Only the... uh, Prema was telling me that in his part from India that he comes from, they haven't had rain in two years. They haven't had rain in two years. So it certainly needs rain. The parched desert needs rain. It would soak it up like a sponge. So while there's no rain here, there, there's rain in the, out in the Bay of Bengal or the Indian Ocean. Uh, rains are impartial. They'll fall in the ocean, they'll fall in the land. Similarly, disaster is impartial. If you think that by chanting Hare Krishna, by a Catholic or a Mormon or a Christian or Jew, you're going to get a pass, no. No, you're going to experience the same things that everyone else experiences. The divinity... The special opportunity is not to avoid the valleys of life, but to deal with them in such a way as to gain profit, as to build character. That's why we have those valleys in life, and that's the benefit of the religious teachings. So disaster hits the just and the unjust. There, were never, there was never anyone more virtuous or more pious in the history of the world than Ram. I've already mentioned him. He's in the lower. There was, no, there was not a fault which attached itself to Ram. He was on the planet literally for thousands of years because in those days people had longer lifespan. And he did not perform, even in his thoughts, one single fault. When Bharat comes back and Kaikei tells him that he's been exiled to the forest for 14 years, Bharat says, why? He is not guilty of a single fault even in his mind. And yet he went to the forest for 14 years. So Ram is an incarnation of Krishna. He's an incarnation of God. And he went to the forest. So what's that all about? He's teaching us. He's teaching us that more valuable things are gained in the valleys of life than in the mountaintops. And even God himself 
un underwent 14 years of a valley of exile. And then above, these are the five Pandavas. Uh, they are great devotees of Lord Krishna. They are associates of the Lord. They are also pure and saintly and fully God conscious. And they, according to the Mahabharata, they went into the forest also for 13 years. They were disenfranchised from their kingdom. They were sent to the forest with no means. They had to live for years and years from hand to mouth, facing all kinds of threats and dangers on the way. So these are, it doesn't get any better than this. It wasn't karma, it wasn't whimsy, it wasn't random, it's just the way things are. Devotees will experience the same kinds of things that other people do. But the difference is that those who are taking shelter at the lotus feet of the Lord experience what they experience as sons of the most powerful, as sons of the most wealthy, the most famous, the most knowledgeable, the most beautiful, and the most humble. So there's always the Lord there looking over them and arranging things just according to the Lord's plan. Whereas those who are not surrendered to the Lord experience everything as orphans. No meaning, no purpose, it's all just random and terminally depressed. Someone says, well, why me? Why me? You know, why do these things happen to me? Maybe uh, I, I uh, had a cancer episode a couple of years ago and uh, I went to see the, uh, I forget what it was, but I wasn't there for chemotherapy, I was there for another reason, but there were two other people in the waiting room with me. And one was a professor at BYU, a middle-aged man, but very good, very fit, uh, and he was there for chemotherapy, and the other was about a 20-year-old BYU student. And he was also a good-looking, handsome man, someone you would think has their whole life before them, and he's suffering from a very serious disease of cancer having to do chemotherapy and his life hangs in the balance. So you might have had a disease that's been lingering for a long time. You know, you might have thought, well, wh wh why wouldn't by now the disease have gone away? Why me and why so long? You might be suffering from debt. You might be deeply in debt with student loans and playing a little loosey-goosey with the credit card. There are people this Christmas season who still haven't paid for their gifts last year. So these things come and they attach themselves to you and they don't go away so easily. And so you might be asking, why me? Why not you? Why me? Why not somebody else? Why not? Why me? So do you think that you should get a pass? All these things are for good. All these things are for good. We don't ask for them, we don't want them, but they're meant for our good. So why you? Because God wants to do good to you. It is said that if a jeweler wants to make one gem shine brighter than all the rest, he does more cutting. So why you? Why not you? Everybody else has to go through the valley of gloom, the valley of calamity, the valley of sickness, the valley of sorrow. Why should you get a pass? You know, it's their opportunities. Their opportunities. So as I promised, I think we'll uh, end here. We've got two more characteristics. We've got two more facts of valleys which we'll bring up next week, and then there's some more information as well. But we try to keep within a certain time limit so as not to overextend ourselves. And also, if, you, if you're interested in the subject matter, Jerry puts the talks on our website and also on uh, iTunes. John has told me that he listens to them. What you hear uh, here in uh, like 40 or 45 minutes, um, 
is going to inform you, but it's not going to transform you. It's not going to bring about any real changes. And I'll be the first one to tell you that. Uh, but if you, if you, like some people are taking notes and they'll go over their notes, or if you download this, or any inspiring message, not just us, but any, any inspiring, insightful message that increases your love for God and your ability to deal with the valleys of life, that should be studied. That should be heard repeatedly. Because we're all suffering from forgetfulness of God, and we're suffering from illusion, and our hearts are dirty. So the repetition is very important. We need to repeatedly apply this cleansing material to the heart. If your heart, which can be compared to a mirror, is encrusted with dust of forgetfulness, one swipe is not going to do anything. But you need to get your elbow grease out and your rag, lubricated wag, and you need to repeatedly go over and over and over that surface. And the more you repetitively rub the surface, the more the grime dissipates and the more you begin to see things as they are for a true reflection. So I can tell you, and you can accept it theoretically, that we're spirits, that we come from the Supreme Spirit, that there's a spiritual world, and the experiences that we have in life are meant for our reinstatement to the spiritual world. And you can accept that all intellectually and theoretically, but it will not get you one step closer to where you want to go. You need to apply yourself with one fraction, with one fraction of the energy that you apply yourself to any course at BYU. With, with the same effort that you apply to geology, or the same effort that you apply to sociology, and with the same intensity that you want to get an A, and you want to graduate, and you want to get... If you apply any of that eagerness to going back to home, back to Godhead, you will achieve that goal. So we'll stop there.